And good morning. Good morning, listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on a nice Friday morning. Yes, not uh, not too warm. Hopefully it uh, stays that way and we don't get cooked like half of the rest of the Southeast Australia. Yes. <laughs> well, it's um well, it's pat- um yesterday it was just over forty degrees in certain parts of Australia. Um, in Melbourne it was. Definitely extremely hot, although quite breezy and windy. So it was sort of like when you're outside, there was like this nice breeze, but then when it was gone, nothing but burning. <laughs> mm. Yes, well, uh, I'm Zane. And I'm Jacob. And yes, as mentioned, you're listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. And of course, it's important to acknowledge that we're coming at you from the 3CR studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, and we are broadcasting to you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and uh, we pay our respect to elders and custodians past, present and future. Alright, so I guess, um, listeners, we can start off with, um, probably, um, we have a bit of a packed, or we have a bit of a, um, what's planned for the program. We have at least two interviews planned later this, um, later in the show. We have Graham Wells, who's a senior lawyer for the social security rights of, um, Melt in Victoria. And he'll be talking to us a lot about the sort of legal issues, um, surrounding, you know, um, the, the cases of Centrelink debt. Um, and also other issues with, you know, um, issues of, you know, social security, um, recipients' rights being violated and so on. We'll also be having an interview with, um, the railway and tram bus union, is that what they're called? The yeah. RTBU. RTBU. Um, the secretary will be talking to us about, um, the, the union's, um, new campaign to nationalise, um, the railways. Um, and so we'll be finding out more about that um, campaign. That's the railways in Victoria, specifically. Mm. Um, but in terms of um, recent news, um, start off a bit light-hearted. There's a uh, um, what happened in the past few days. As many probably heard, that um, Corey Bernardi now has a new political party, and he has officially resigned from the Liberal Party. The Corgi has left the building. And um, and it's quite funny because his party is called um, he's calling his new party and actually um, this tonight actually he probably will be launching his party because he's um, apparently having dinner at the Q Society which is like this sort of Islamophobia kind of uh, outfit and the um, Q stands for quack. <laughs> and um, there will be a protest organised against it, a counter-protest, so stay tuned for more details of that in the activist calendar um, later on the show. Um, but he's he has called his new political party the Conservative Australian Right... Well, no, no, Conservative Right Wing Australia Party. And the acronym basically writes, reads out CRAP, which is, I'm not sure... If there's any self-awareness when they thought of that, um, um, when he sought up that political um, party name, but it's, you know, it's probably already going to be the subject of, you know, ridicule and jokes by the greater public. So, yeah, 
Mm. But that's all pretty much he is to say. He's resigned. Um, and other he's than, set up the CROP. <laughs> yeah. But I think what, um, to, be, to you know, uh, it sort of represents sort of this interesting kind of, you know, split in the sort of right wing because basically in Australia you have, um, you have the Liberal Party and then you have, you know, the, and then you have, now you have crap. Well, you have considered right wing Australia. Eh? Then you have the One Nation, and then you have the rise of Australia. So there seems to be this sort of split coming in. Um, there seems to be a trend of, of you know, the, all these divergent kind of forces in the right wing. Um, but of course, ultimately, it doesn't really amount to much in Parliament because even though you know One Nation is a separate party from the Liberal Party, they basically wrote with the Liberal Party anyway in Parliament. So it's mm. even, um, but One Nation is much more it's over it. kind of like a, the right faction. It's yeah. like a right-wing faction is how it operates yeah. in Parliament. Yeah. Um, now, the next um, bit of news is uh, we talked about this a lot last week, but there's um, about the kind of trend of the criminalisation of homelessness that's happening currently in Melbourne that is being overwhelmingly being pushed um, by the Melbourne Law Mayor, um, Robert Doyle. Um, just um, last, this Tuesday, um, there was a bit, there was a big, um, there was a council meeting um, happening where basically um, councillors voted five to four to on Tuesday evening to seek to broaden the definition of camping. Um, this is a move that um, legal experts warned could lead to rough sleepers being forced to the outskirts of Melbourne or fined for sleeping with nothing more than a cardboard box and blanket. Um, basically, what th- what this law means is it's basically making it illegal to you know camp on the streets. If you look in the streets of Melbourne, there's a lot of homeless people who are um, who you know rely on you know setting up camp sites with you know blankets and that. What this law essentially does is make it illegal to you know possess that other than, you know, as um, possess, you know, things that make it more comfortable to basically sleep on the street. Um, the decision, um, this is as reported in The Age, um, the decision came despite homeless groups and the Law Institute of Victoria condemning the plan, saying the police and council officers already had plan powers to tackle issues such as aggressive behaviour and public drunkenness. Um, Kate Colvin from the Council to Homeless Persons said the, um, the new definition of camping was so broad it would prevent people from simply being allowed to lie down on cardboard. Effectively, we think it is saying to people that they shouldn't exist. Um, there was also, in, as reported in the article, from there was a failed attempt by the Greens councillor Rohan Levitt to remove the camping ban provision from the motion which also endorsed introducing fines for the, um, those who leave items unattended and a campaign to discourage giving donated items directly to homeless people. Um, Councillor um, Lebert said it was already a fence through the city local laws for a person in a public place to adversely affect the amenity of that public place or to obstruct any other person in or that public home. But the alternative motion was blocked by the five-person team led by the law mayor who holds a majority in the council. Um, so basically this is, this is all part of like a continued kind of trend to criminalise homelessness. It's basically, you know, saying to people, you know, you're not 
you're not um, welcome, saying to homeless people, you're not welcome to, you know, sleep on the streets. Mm. Um, and instead of um, and instead of actually addressing why they're on the streets to begin with, you know, which is due to, you know, the lack of affordable housing, the lack of jobs, um, you know, the lack of um, support and health support for, for those who might be mentally unwell. Um, and it's just driving them off the streets and, you know, criminalising them as a way of pushing them off and... Um, as in response, there is actually a campaign um, starting to develop um, um, that's been sort of led by the Homeless Person Union, um, and um, they, they held a community meeting um, yesterday. I unfortunately wasn't able to attend it, um, but I uh, got a, a good amount of interest. So they're going to be starting. People are going to start organising against this, uh, against these new laws within the, the next 28 days, and there's going to be. Um, um, there's going to be sort of a push to put forward some alternative, um, some alternative kind to, through feedback to the council, and there'll be a lot, and they'll should and stay tuned. They, um, just like from the past two weeks, there there will be probably protests and rallies to attend. Mm. Yeah, the thing I find most repugnant about all of it is that it treats homeless people as though it's their choice. Like it's not camping. It's not like, oh, let's have an exciting night out in the city and go camping on the sidewalk and, mm. you know, potentially get spat on or harassed by random, you know, drunk people or whatever. It's like, what an unpleasant thing to have to do, like, be homeless. Mm. And, um, and it's like one of the reasons why um, homeless people would want to sleep in these public areas is it's because it's much safer, there's much more, yeah. there's people around. There's I wouldn't m- feel very safe in the city. So it tells you something about that is, you know, a relatively safer place. Mm. Um, then, um, then probably sleeping in the corner, um, some hidden part where no one can. Of course, there's actually attempts um, to criminalise that as well. And um, in the case of, say, Brisbane, where they're all, um, where they're trying to, you know, prevent people from sleeping, because um, you know, in Brisbane, there's like this sort of bridge, and underneath that, um, a lot of homeless people, you know sleep there um, and basically I think there's a, there's been attempts by the local government to actually attempt to criminalise, or the state government, not the um, local council, the state government to actually criminalise that mm. and I think there has been, there's also an campa- uh, ongoing campaign against that um, sort of related to sort of the, which is politically taking up the issue, basically the right to the city and, you know, the right to public space. Mm. And as the Homeless Persons Union keeps pointing out, there's tens of thousands of vacant apartments and homes in Victoria uh, that are probably mostly owned by speculators who are able to write it off as a tax deduction as they you know, make a loss on their apartments by not having people in there. So it's... Yeah, it's um, interesting enough, maybe I'll bring up... Uh, um, I just saw... Um, um uh, a sort of article got posted about, you know, in Melbourne, they get to start... They get to build... Uh, don't know how many. Let me get the stories. Um, they get build. Yes, this is reported in the ABC. Um, Australia's tourist tower to be built in um, Melbourne. Basically, the Victorian government um, basically approved um, development for a 200 million free tower development with buildings of up to 34 stories tower, housing t- 1,060 luxury apartments. It's it's very telling that basically that's. M- creating more of the wealth divide and essentially they're going to be luxury apartments that no one can afford apart from those who are very well off. 
Um, these, if there were, you know, if there, there's all these push to build all these sort of apartment apartments, and you can, you can see it in like the inner city of, say, Fitzroy, so on. But none of them are affordable for the average resident, and so it's leaving leading to more empty homes. Hmm. Uh, and and know, there's an oversupply. There's, yeah. an, there's an existing oversupply of of apartments. So mm. this will add to that. It's going to and be very interesting. Because yeah. Potentially there'll be an apartment bubble will burst and then that, that apartments will become quite cheap mm. and that will drag down the price of normal housing as well. Mm. So it's, it's yeah. going to be interesting. But what? something's got to give because yep. it just doesn't make sense that houses will just continue to... Um, move further and further away and become greater and greater multiples of the average worker's annual income. Because the rate it's going, you know, in in 10 years' time, an average worker's salary might be, well, pretty much the same as it is now, the rate things are going, whereas a house will cost 20 times the average salary. Like, everyone will be trying to buy a a million-dollar house on their... Thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars salary. It's it, something's got to give. The yeah. economics just don't stack up. Yeah, and um, as someone who's currently looking for a house right now, it's uh, you kind of see, you know, how you know problematic the the sort of housing market. In fact, actually, I expected this place the other day, which is like it was like a sort of nice apartment in Brunswick, and it's interesting enough. Um, it's actually partially um government sub. Uh, it's a government subsidised sort of apartment because basically. It's part of a sort of uh, agreement between the government and housing providers that they that that these um part these units in apartments are reserved entirely um for low income owners. You know that's all well and good, um but the problem is it's like it's basically a way of the government trying to address the issue of affordable housing without, without actually, actually challenging property developers or real estates like without you know mm. because you they're basically paying them to basically all give these opposed when they the reality is the government should be intervened you know to implement something like public housing which Hmm. as you know many groups and campaign groups are saying it guarantees actual rights for tenants Hmm. but their mates the property developers don't want that because Hmm. if you've got cheap public housing all of a sudden it becomes a lot more difficult to charge higher rents for your private uh yeah, the two are very <laughs> linked. Well, that's that relates to our personal opinions and why we don't think the market is adequate to solve, you know, the issues of housing. Mm. And also the extent to which state governments. Like I'm from Newcastle originally, and the just the the relationship between Liberal and Labor state governments in New South Wales and property developers is just hand in glove. It's it's outrageous. Mm. And it uh, looks like it's pretty similar down here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in terms of... Um, we're going to talk about um, some news from the latest issue of Green Left Weekly. Um, there's a sort of short story here on um, on Britain, um, this, and this is a very relevant article in relation to what's happening with um, Centrelink currently, the, um, this, which has been a regular kind of discussion topic on this program. And basically the article, is, as titled, Welfare Cuts Leave Disabled un, um, Unable to Live. This is in the case of Britain. Um, the Conservative government um, has basically had a plan to slash unemployment benefits for disabled people making new claims could lead some unable to afford the essentials of life, opponents warned in February 2nd. Um, under these um, government plans, um, 
from April, new claimant assets as fit to work will have their benefits cut by £29 to £73 a week, the same rate as the job seekers' allowance. The government claims the exchange will help halve the disability employment gap and save the Treasury an estimated £1 billion by 2020 to 21. However, the House of Commons Work and Pensions Committee said the cut would leave some people with lower dispo- disposable incomes and than GSA claimants as they often face higher living costs due to their disability. The committee said its members had heard substantial concerns about the possible impact of the new rate on disabled people capacity to look for and move into work. Um, Disabled People Against Cuts founder Linda Bunnip told the Morning Star that the Tories' welfare changes were painting a really grim picture and having a massive impact on disabled people overall. She said there was stark evidence that the latest round of cuts would push people further and further into poverty. Hmm. And um, actually extending from from that, sorry, I, I like two months ago I watched the latest film um, by Ken Loach, who's like a known sort of socialist um, filmmaker, mm. who um, directs and makes a lot of films, you know, about um, about working class people and their struggles against injustice. And his latest film, I, Daniel Blake, um, which is actually probably still screening in the cinema at Cinema Nova, okay. um, is, yeah, basically it's about... You know, someone who um, has been, you know, declared not fit to work. Um, or he, he's, basi- he's basically has a... Well, no, he hasn't actually been declared not fit to work. That's the conflict of the film. Basically, he's some he's a worker who is just... Um, he's very clearly not fit to work. <laughs> he's very clearly not fit to work, yet he gets given the job seeker allowance instead of the disability benefit. Mm. What, um, what was his condition specifically? He had a heart attack or something? Yeah, he basically had um, a sort of heart condition, which right. prevent... Um, it was only temporary, mm. um, but basically he was not fit to work for, like, uh, several months, and but he... But the welfare, as um, you know, the welfare, um, as portrayed, they declared him fit for work, and they basically forced him on, uh, like the equivalent to Nusa, mm. and basically, you know, forced him, you know, through the stress of trying to find work, despite the fact, you know, he had a doctor's certificate that said, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, he shouldn't be working, he shouldn't be looking for work at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he wasn't. Probably, not- I would think. Avoiding stress is uh, pretty important if you've got a heart condition or you're recovering from yeah. one. And so, yeah, that whole film, you know, reveals the kind of whole injustice and relates very... Um, there's, in Britain, there's basically this push to basically push disabled people on to, you know, mm. into finding work mm. when clearly they shouldn't be working, they should just be receiving the disability. Mm. Um, and there's all these sort of stringent sort of bureaucratic measures of, you know whether you're not fit to work. For example, there's like this point system. So if you just miss, like if you just say you're just one point off, you know, then then it will declare you fit to work and they'll force you to work even if your medical condition or disability actually in reality prevents you from being able to work. Hmm. Um, and going on to the next um, kind of article, moving on to Australia, um, many uh, many listeners will probably um, are aware of um, what's happening in the United States with you know Donald Trump's kind of proposed sort of ban, um, proposed ban on on ref, my, refugees or migrants coming in from selected countries. Um, 
In this article, Zebedee Parks writes, um, in the, this is in, uh, the front page article of the Green Left Weekly, um, Trump's shameful refugee policy expired by Australia's. And as he writes here, the world has reacted in anger, solidarity and protest to um, US President Donald Trump's um, Muslim immigration ban. Um, But he argues here that, you know, there's one government, you know, in the world that is supporting um, Trump's immigration ban and and he claims that is Australia. He argues this by, you know, pointing out the similarities between um, Australia's refugee and immigration um, policies. Um, in that he states that Australia has become a world leader in creating and enforcing refugee policies that stop refugees coming into the country no matter how dire the, the situation they're fleeing. And, and um, he writes here in terms in more detail on the similarities, governments across Europe and are looking to Australia for inspiration on how to stop the boats from Syria, but Trump is taking it to a whole new level. This prompted former Immigration Minister Scott Morrison to come out in support of Trump's policy, saying on January 30th that the world would love to have Australia's borders, but it is catching up. Opposition um, Bill Shorten responded by criticising Trump and talking up multiculturalism, causing an avalanche of comments on social media, condemning Labor's refugee policy and pointing out that its similarities to Trump's policy. Um, Trump has complete... Um, in. He writes here that, you know, Trump has completely suspended the US refugee admission system for 120 days, including the Syrian refugee program indefinitely. He has launched wide-scale deportation and banned anyone from entering the US from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Liberia and Sudan. Um, Australia's, um, he, and then he writes here that, you know, Australia's system has a similar effect, um, but more subtle, subtle with, um, you know, boat turnbacks, indefinite offshore detention and resettlement in PNG and Nauru. Australian policy stops refugees such as from Sri Lankan who have no option other than to flee by boat from ever seeking refuge in Australia. And of course, you know, refugees live in bridging visas. Um, they're unable to... De- um, um, refugees who come by boat also face discrimination from the Immigration Department being, um, from being able to take citizenship tests and length of the process. Um, last year's um, proposal from the federal government of lifetime bans for any asylum seeker refugee comes to Australia by boat will allow this to be taken to a whole new level. And of course, another similarity rights is that you know both governments um, think they're above the law. Um, um, oh, so when it comes to refugee and immigration policies, um, the U.S. government has instructed. Um, immigration officials to ignore the orders of federal judges while the Australian government has virtually ignored the PNG court's decision that Manus Island Detention Centre is unconstitutional. Um, so, yeah, but, um, but then there's also this other complicated thing that um, Zeb talks about here, about basically the guy in the US, the, the status of the US refugee deal. Hmm. Um, the guy, the Guardian reported earlier that, you know, the White House had said it is still going ahead with the deal and accepting 1250 of the 1,600 refugees currently detained in Manus Island, Nauru. Um, but they, they will be subjected to extreme vetting protests that mean, that may mean no one gets through. Um, because the main issue is that a lot of these refugees that, um, are held on Manus and Nauru are actually from those countries that are actually banned under Donald Trump's sort of immigration order. So there's all this sort of re- 
complicated kind of issue because the main the main so maybe the extreme vetting will sort of go oh after our extreme vetting we found out that some of these people are from the seven verboten countries the seven forbidden countries and therefore they're not allowed to come Mm. and yeah so um but then one of the things with the deal is that the the US the deal for the US to take refugees from um, our um, Australian's detention centres was actually something that was put forward that was actually implemented by President Obama right before he handed over you know the government to mm. Donald Trump and Donald Trump actually <laughs> made this really it's not it's a really sort of weird tweet about how oh yes. Um, complain about how Obama made a deal to get, bring all these illegal immigrants, yeah, referring, illegal immigrants referring to refugees into the country, and he's going to do something about it. So there's that kind of thing in, in play, uh, also dynamic ways, um, where Donald Trump's going to probably do everything in his power to basically prevent the US refugee deal from being made. Of course, I would argue that, you know, the US refugee deal is basically a band-aid non-solution, and, you know, I still argue uh, as the refugee movement has been arguing in Australia that we know we need to close down the camps mm. and we need to let bring the... I think it's against the UN Convention on Refugees as well. You can't just palm off refugees somewhere else. If they've come to your country looking mm. for shelter there, they need to be protests in your country. You can't yep. just go, oh, keep moving, go yep. over there. Well, it's interesting enough, um, many... Some people might remember like that years ago, um, the New Zealand government actually offered to take some of these refugees um, mm. and settle them into New Zealand, except I think it was um, the acting minister at the time was Scott Morrison, and or was it Peter Dunton? I forgot. They both... They mm-hmm. both have very similar policies anyway. One so. of those two. And one of those two. Psychopaths. Yeah, and um, both both of them refused to, you know, ta- um, refuse mm. that deal for of New Zealand and just yeah. decide oh, to Oh, we can't it. have that. We can't treat refugees like they're actual people. Yeah. It's important that we torture them. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, Zeb argue, um, argues at the end, and this is in line with what, you know, our program promotes, that, you know, there's a need for solidarity with the struggles for migrants and refugee rights is greater than ever, you know, and as one placard as at the protest outside the Los Angeles airport in the US said, from Australia to the US, open the borders, let them stay. Word. Hey, so that's, um, and, um, one thing to, just one thing to sort of plug, um, it looks like there is actually, I actually think it looks like in the case of, you know, the election of Donald Trump, um, there's going to be lots of, um, protests happening in, um, Melbourne this year. Um, the, um, just last Friday, there was a, a, a quite a massive protest against um, Donald Trump um, that were, um, had over a thousand people in attendance. At the, at this started at the Melbourne State Library last Friday. Mm. Um, it was actually quite inspiring, actually, because I was at the rally and um, there was an overwhelmingly, you know, pro kind of refugee sentiment, and it was all a lot of the attention was actually put towards um, at the rally to. Australia's shameful refugee policy. So mm. through Donald Trump, there's actually this sort of unity between, you know, the refugee rights movement that's as it's currently happening in Australia. Mm. And, of course, there's lots of people, you know, disenfranchised with Donald Trump and very scared of the Trump presidency. And it's kind of bridging those two kind of um, discrete kind of movements together. Mm. So there will be, um, on the 18th, um, there will be a rally at the State Library um, organised by Refugee Action Collective uh, against, um, basically against, uh, you know, against Donald Trump's Muslim ban, but also putting forward the demands of, you know, no, 
close the camps, you know, bring the refugees here. Mm. And then, because like you've just said in that article, that's such a clear link. It's our actions here empower people like mm. Trump to implement similar super regressive retrograde policies in in their countries and um there's and then there'll be um there will be another rally against trump um in um in march i think organized by australia says no to trump that's going to be happening in melbourne um stay tuned for more details in our future programs yeah cool and i saw a few like on facebook friends with a few different seasoned lefties and, and you know campaigners and there was a few people who were at that protest who said, you know, this is, it's got that vibe of something really kind of uh, exciting. That yeah. had that real energy of this could be the start of something big. Yeah. And speaking of something big, I'm, this will give you a perfect opportunity to talk about this article um, written by Pip Henman in the latest Green Library. Just a short article. We were talking before about, um, you know, refugee rights and sort of the growing movement of, um, again, um, for refugee rights and against, and standing up against Donald Trump. Um, but, um, right now, a, with all these sort of issues, um, you know, the government, um, this is a talking about an article but written by Pip Henman, um, you know, promoting and talking about the upcoming March protests. Um, the article is titled March and March Against the 1%. Um, and she writes here, according to a central poll um, released on January 31st, 40% of those surveyed believe the system needs to be fundamentally changed and only just 6% says it works well, referring to you know rising unemployment, low wages, climate change, corruptions and attacks on single parents, welfare recipients, refugees, asylum seekers and Indigenous people are just some of the, the concerns motivating people to join various protests and rallies. Um, getting on the streets is becoming a new norm as dissatisfaction with the status quo reaches a new high. But, you know, tapping into this, um, March Australia has announced na- nationwide rallies for Saturday, March 25th. It is also calling um, on those who can help organise a rally in their city to get in touch with the Matt. March Australia Activists Interchange. Um, the previous March and March took place three years ago when the Tony Abbott government had just been elected. Um, things are get, getting worse under the Malcolm Turnbull government. The coalition government has presided over the rise of right-wing bigotry and tolerance. It's running, ruining, not running, um, the relaxed, fair, inclu- inclusive and tolerant society Australians love, March Australia said. So far, rallies are being organised in Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong, Adelaide, Cairns, Gosford and Brisbane, and the list of cities is growing. Three years ago, um, a huge um, number of community-based groups and individuals brought their message to March and March, sending a clear vote of no confidence in government policy decisions, and between 80,000 and 100,000 people came out onto the streets for the 2014 March and March. And Pip writes here, let's make this one even bigger. Can race. Yeah. So that um, so I actually I'm actually thinking this year is actually probably um, last year, you know, going to almost most of the rallies last year. Um, there actually wasn't that much in terms of rallies. In fact, the last rally was in November was about refugee rights, which you know didn't um, attracted a good size, but no, it does seem like within these first three months, there's already more rallies planned than what there was in the first three months of 2016. So mm. we'll be um, bracing for an interesting year. People are getting fired up. And it's, I think it's good too, the March in March. It's a sort of a unifying 
big picture type of rally and looks at all these different issues. Uh, I think it's important to have independent single issue campaigns looking at stuff like the Centrelink robo-debts, fighting Islamophobia, sticking up for refugees and saying close the camps. But I think it's also really important to have a, a unifying uh, thing like the March in March, which says, look at all of these issues. Something is really rotten here. We need systemic um, change. Hmm. Um, now, speaking of unity, um, this is this, I want to talk about this brief article, and um, I think we might have mentioned um, this decision by um, by the council Fremantle in an earlier radio program. Um, but basically, in this article, one day in Fremantle, which happened on January 28th, which is almost like a sort of a basically alternative sort of Australia Day, or but, um, that was. Alone among, and we'll write here, it writes here, um, alone among, in Green Left Weekly, alone among Australian councils, the city in Fremant, of Fremantle and Western Australia recognised that January 26th is a date that many Australians do not want to celebrate and instead decided to celebrate with, um, sorry, culturally, um, inclusive public activities two days later. A morning soaking, um, it writes here, a morning smoking ceremony kicked off the day's events, which was conducted by the elders at the Fremantle Roundhouse, the place where Aboriginal men were once imprisoned before being taken to Rocked Nest Island, from which many did not return. The ceremony was to cleanse the area of bad spirits and recognise the city of Fremantle's efforts to heal the wounds of Aboriginal people. A great um, family atmosphere and harmony um, filled uh, Esplade Park as um, 15,000 people enjoyed the one-day concert in the afternoon and early evening. A highlight was John Butler, Dan Sultan, Moma King and Gina Williams singing an amazing rendition of Porn Kelly and Kev Carmodo song from Little Sings, Big Sings Grow with thousands singing along as the sun set over Bathurst Beach. Fremantle Council endured almost weekly attacks over its decision to hold its Australian Day celebration on uh, January 28th as some very powerful, very powerful people desperately tried to stifle what has become a national discussion. One day in Fremantle was one small step on the path towards greater inclusion and respect. We have a long way to go, but hopefully one day we'll resonate around the country for a long time yet. Mm. And um, what's particularly great about this whole, the greater political context event is apparently in Fremantle, there was basically no re- Australian Day parade. Like, apparently, like mm. it was, the streets were pra- practically empty. As and pa- well, that's I think the whole point. I think uh, usually local governments or whatever are the ones who kind of organise and schedule that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, um, but because the city of Fremantle, you know, moved to a, to doing a much more inclusive event that mm. was actually done in consultation. You know, this um, was a move that was actually. Or, you know, done in consultation with the Aboriginal community. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, this doesn't, you know, um, my personal opinion is it doesn't complete, you know, it doesn't completely, you know, fix, you know, the, this whole issues around, you know, um, invasion day and mm. genocide. But, you know, it's one, it's a small, as the article says, it's a small step, you know, that I think, you know, mm. and it, the fact that, you know, the government, um, I think that Malcolm Turnbull said something about this, you know, it's causing such a stir in the government. Um, mm. His is also a great thing and sort of like it's challenging, you know, Australian nationalism and jingoism. Yeah, and seeing the photos there, it's just electrifying. There's so many people there. It's a really, looks like there was probably somewhere around, I don't know, eight or 10,000 people. Looks like an excellent concert. And I reckon there would have been a really good vibe there and people really 
really excited as a community to be to be pushing forward that whole debate right across Australia. So, word up, Frio Council, doing really good stuff over yeah. there, and the Frio community in general, mm. and uh, the Noongar activists who are involved in all of that. Yes, staunch. On the line, we have actually got Graham Wells from uh, the Social Security Rights Victoria. Graham is the uh, principal lawyer and clinical supervisor there, and we're pretty keen to talk to Graham this morning about the legalities surrounding the robo debt scandal. Welcome, Graham. Good morning, Zane. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, good morning. Um, so I guess the first kind of question I want to ask is um, what um, what are sort of the legal issues, you know, um, surrounding these sort of automated kind of debt notices that have been sent to people around Centrelink? Okay, well, I guess the, the first thing is there's various types of Centrelink debt and it's usually when there's been some level of income misreporting. So if I'm working part-time, and I'm on New Start or if I'm on Youth Allowance or I study, then uh, what I've got to do is let Centrelink know of any income that I might receive. So I've done all those things. I've rung them up every fortnight or done it online via MyGov or even gone into the office and said, this, this, here's my um, payslip, here's my income, and I've, so I've done all those right things. So time rolls on and this new, I guess, algorithm or data matching software is is added to the system but what's happening is instead of looking at each pay period so each fortnight i might get paid or something like that it looks at a total amount that is provided by the australian taxation office and this is what would appear normally on someone's group certificate and then what it's doing it's averaging out that averaging that out per annum to see if per fortnight per annum i'd be eligible for um whatever payment i'm on now, that all sounds fine, but the problem is it's instead of looking at it fortnightly, it's looking at it per annum. So if I do some contract work or some sessional work and I earn a squillion dollars for that month or those two or three months, and that puts me above an annualised per annum, uh, I, I guess, amount, then what happens is a debt's raised for all of that time rather than just those fortnights that I was supposed to be reporting. And so it's this whole process of annualisation which is causing a lot of problems. In in your opinion, is that a legitimate <laughs> type of accounting? I, I think it's... Well, there's a number of people exploring this and I've got to do some more work on this later this morning and, and help prepare uh, an opinion for another large... Um, well, not, we're not a large legal organisation, but a very large legal organisation because this is what we're checking is the legality of the whole thing. Now, Centrelink, and to me, it, it smacks of recklessness right from the beginning in a, in a legal sense, that Centrelink knows that this is inaccurate. Okay, so, you know, they've got lots of resources. The people who originally designed this algorithm or commissioned this form of data matching knew it was going to catch people that had no debt. Mm. But they've gone ahead and done it anyway. So to me, that, that's, that's not very good practice at all. And we've got to note that, and look, sorry if I'm using legal terms, but the Commonwealth, so the federal government, is what's known as a model litigant. So they can only, they've said, and the Attorney General said to them, you can only pursue matters where there's legal merit or legal worth. And they've got a, a fairly high standard. And now to go around and 
knowing that there's going to catch in a, catch people who've got no debt and proceed anyway, to me that's wrong. That's wrongful. And that's something we're trying to, we and a number of other organisations across the country are trying to pursue. Hmm. It seems uh, the, the way the Commonwealth is, the, the way that Centrelink is going about sending out these debts is almost reminiscent of these uh, um, film uh, production companies who sent out what were known as speculative invoices where they had some internet record of people um, illegally downloading films or whatever and then they would send a massive uh, invoice to them and say, oh, you've illegally downloaded this film, give us $20,000 and they would just sort of <laughs> see who would cough up the money and, and see what exactly. they would Exactly, and that's a really good analogy, and it's certainly something um, people are thinking about at the moment in terms of challenging this. Uh, and it is speculative. The Minister, this is, uh, Mr Alan Tudge, I hope you and Mr Hank Jorgen of um, Centrelink are listening, but you've already said that you're hoping to raise $44 billion in revenue. Now, to me, that, that's speculative, if nothing else is. So put very simply, or put very plainly, this whole thing is a large fishing expedition to raise revenue or minimise expenditure on Centrelink's behalf. And, you know, they say that they're out to stop people committing frauds. No, that's not what they're trying to do. I mean, frauds under the, it can be pursued under the criminal code. Criminal code. But um, and, and, and it's wrongful. And, of course, I don't think anyone wants to see um, people going around uh, committing wrongs against people because we're going to the Commonwealth because eventually it just affects everybody else. But this, this is a bit different. And so they know they're out there to, to get money, as much money as they can, and that there's a lot of people who have no debt who are caught up in this whole thing. And even if someone does have a debt, all we want is fairness. Hmm. You know, that, that's what the law is about. It's being fair. It's, it's, it's do, and doing good law is, is being fair. It's uh, making sure that um, all people have access to um, their rights, their entitlements, and um, if any of your listeners are caught up with um, uh, any of these online debts, I'd be asking them to contact their community legal centre. So the nearest community legal centre, there's all sorts across the Victorian countryside and the Melbourne metropolitan area. And or if they can't get through or they're not sure, try Victoria Legal Aid because they're doing a fantastic job with this as well. Um, because it's not just a social issue, it's becoming a legal issue. Um, when people have have debts raised against them, there's all sorts of stories about uh, debt collectors pursuing them and harassing them, uh, and mm. it's really important that people feel that they can do something about this. Um, hmm. uh, I, I have an interest to declare here. I got sent one of these debts, which was uh, <laughs> eventually dropped after I challenged it. Uh, yep. I, I know I was sort of clutching around trying to figure out what I would do to fight the debt, one of the things that I looked at was the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission website. Now, I later realised that ACCC legislation is for private corporations. It doesn't cover uh, public entities like Centrelink. But it was yeah. interesting. Three things that I found regarding debt is, number one, uh, if you um, are being chased for a debt, you're entitled to ask the party that's chasing you for that debt for... Uh, you know, documentation that says why you owe them money. I went into a Centrelink office and they they just printed out a one-page invoice for the money. They didn't mm-hmm. print me out a dossier showing what their computer, had, how their computer had calculated this debt. 
and it yeah, took yeah. A, a lot of chasing to get what was called my ADEX, my ADEX debt schedule yeah. mailed out to me. And even then, when I spoke to them on the phone, they tried to like read the thing out over the phone, like this giant spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, so what what what's the deal there legally? What sort of uh, well, exactly? Um, look, as you said, the, these spreadsheets are incredibly complex. And just for the sake of your listeners who probably haven't seen one of them, imagine a very large A3 uh, piece of paper divided up into a whole series of little squares with different figures, and it will have every amount of income that's been reported on that, every uh, time Sinlink's paid someone any new start or youth allowance or whatever as well, and various additions and deductions accordingly. And they're they're really complex, and there'll be some totals at the bottom of the page. Now... To get a copy of one of that, that information, you've pretty much got to do an FOI, or as you've done, really be quite persistent and determined and ask for reasons how and why and show the evidence of how this debt was raised. Now, this is the heart of the problem. And look, a Senate inquiry was um, announced, I think, yesterday. Uh, I've only heard it secondhand, but I know it's out there. And so I've got to look at that later this morning. But there's also an ombudsman own motion um, investigation at the moment as well into this. So these are things that people can contribute to. So, And one is the complexity. Now, why is it so complex? Because if I'm paid on yesterday being the 7th, well, no, the 9th of um, uh, uh, February, and I couldn't contact Centrelink that day, the Centrelink reporting period might be next week on a particular day, or it might have been the week before on a particular day. So Centrelink, for some reason cannot process it on the day it's been reported and then average it for between a fortnight to match their own reporting schedule. So there's all these little gaps of days right through the whole 12-month period. And this is where a lot of income debts arise in that Centrelink's not happy with the figure that they get because it doesn't match the figure that's generated on their system, which might have two or three days plus interest or something else on it. And that mm. triggers a lot of this investigation. Uh, and what we're seeking is to, for that to be sorted out right at the beginning. So the amount that someone declares to Centrelink when they're paid is the amount that's used um, to assess their income. And it's not averaged, again, um, 12 months down the line or averaged into some other figure, but that they can adapt their own reporting schedule to match each Centrelink customer or each, each person's actual income um, and re- income dates. Hmm. It, it can't be rocket science, and I'm not an accountant, but the, the joke in our office is that you've more or less got to be an accountant to be able to report your income to Centrelink to get it <laughs> matching with their system because it's so inflexible. Hmm. And it's ridiculous. It really is quite ridiculous in today's day and age. Uh, now, the, the other thing that I came up against when I was disputing my debt is the uh, onus of proof. So oh, it, yeah. <laughs> if... If um, Telstra or a car loan company or a bank or whatever wants to chase me and say, hey, you owe us money, they've got to be able to demonstrate that and they're not allowed to set their debt collectors on me until it's been very clearly established that I definitely owe them that debt. The, The Centrelink process reverses the onus of proof and puts it on the uh, person who's being chased for the debt to chase up old, um, pay slips and they say oh well according to Fair Work Australia you're entitled to these pay slips but that's 
just because I'm technically entitled to these pay slips doesn't mean A, I can find my old employer, or B, they're going to actually cough it up. So, Oh, exactly. And the other thing is your employer might not be in existence any longer. I mean, we had a client just um, a week or two ago, and his employer goes out of business quite regularly. Um, and so they start up again under a new name. Now, that's a, an issue for them, a separate issue that's problematic with Phoenix companies rising and disappearing and rising again. But this fellow would work for this company that kept changing its name every every year, and he'd earn a significant amount of money in a short period, and a debt was annualised, and he's, we're working through that. But the thing is, if the employer's not there anymore, there won't be any pay records. And so it's very hard for someone to come up with a pay slip. Now, what the history of the data matching is that in the past, well, back in 1990, there's a data matching act. And so that gave Simulink the ability to go back and look at ATO records or other records and compare with their own records to see if there's differences. And they used to work through about 20,000 um, investigations every year. Hmm. Now, with this new algorithm, that lets them do a significant more. And since July of last year, or this current year, they've done something like 230 or 40,000 irregularities or investigations just where the algorithm sees a difference and generates um, an investigation. Now, the result of that, most people get a letter asking them to show payslips or provide some sort of evidence. And it's pretty hard, as I said, if the company is out of business. The other thing is it's also pretty hard going back six years looking for payslips when that company... um, may have moved or may you may have moved or the records might not be there or they might they might have been entered incorrectly. Um, there might be various typos on both sides. And so it's going to take a bit of time to get that. If someone can't get their pay slips, what we've advised them is to go back and try to find copies of their bank account at the time to show when they were being paid and when they received income um, and to provide that to Synlink. And that'll show when they weren't receiving income as well. So there are other ways in which people can follow that up. Mm. Um, I might have... I've said in other areas that Centrelink's got fairly vast and powerful information-gathering arms, so they can actually go to an employer and ask them for the pay slips, and the employer's got a legal obligation to provide those. Um, And it's a a fairly serious matter. If they don't provide them, uh, then... That they may get a big fine, or they may end up with, um, yeah, they may get a very significant fine as a result. So they, it's something they have to do. But then employers change address as well, and so that they may never receive that, or they may have a different name. And I've already talked about typos and things, mm. which, which if they come up on a computer, no one will realise that um, it's a similar sounding sounding name or a misspelt name. Whereas if you've got a real person doing this, then um, they may pick that up. They'll spot it. Yeah. All right, um, and as you've mentioned, if if people are struggling with a uh, robo death, uh, they should approach Vic Legal Aid or some other. Uh... Well, it, 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 to me, it's it, the important thing to think about is it's becoming a legal matter if they've got a debt generated against them. Now, you know, someone can think, "Oh, who gives this stuff? I'll just ignore it completely." Well, what will happen is at some point in time, if you get a tax return. Centrelink will garnish that and take it to pay what this debt is. 
And sooner or later, someone's going to start trying to take money out of your account, whether that's a debt collector or Centrelink itself. Hmm. They call that, the legal term for that is garnishing funds as well. So they get an order or they, 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 they can and they just start taking money out of Centrelink. So if someone ignores this completely, sooner or later, money's going to go missing from their accounts or from their um, tax return. Or, or uh, And the key thing, I think, for people is to do something about that. And that's why I'm saying go to your local community legal centre I mean, and a big shout out to all those community legal centre workers out there and all those people working in the community because it's a very busy time and they're doing a fantastic job. If you can't, not sure where your community legal centre is or who to talk to, try Victoria Legal Aid. And I know they've got a team of people um, dedicated to these robo-debts at the moment. So mm. um, that's a starting point as well. Yeah, we can. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks uh, very much for speaking with us this morning. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work in uh, challenging and, and providing advice for, for other organisations that are challenging this robo-debt system. Thank you. You're very welcome and all the best to the program and to your listeners and I hope that they don't get caught up in this scam. Because yeah. <laughs> that's what it is, really. It's a big scam and there's, there's better ways of doing things. Yeah. And, you know, if people have got the energy and they can get involved in contact the Ombudsman's office and make a submission to their investigation and or um, think about writing their own case history and what happened to them and sharing that with uh, the Senate inquiry that's been announced because the more people that get behind that, the more chance there'll be of real change taking place. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks again. Okay. Bye. All right. Uh, Graham Wells there, the uh, Principal um, Lawyer and Clinical Supervisor at Social Security Rights Victoria. Um, and they have a Facebook page which you can like, which is search up Social Security Rights um, Victoria. And they actually have quite a number of resources um, that you can print out related to um, all these issues um, related to Social Security and your rights. <laughs> all right. It's five past eight, Friday morning, 10th of Feb. You're on 3CR, this is Grand Left Radio. And uh, as you've just heard, you should subscribe to 3CR. Uh, from memory, as I am a subscriber myself, I think it's $30 a year. Uh, it has different um, payment rates. Um, oh, okay. So you can like pay as much as $100 for your subscribing rate. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, 3CR, if you're not aware, there's about 300 volunteers here, workers, presenters. There's a small staff to steer this uh, epic ship of radical radio. And uh, by subscribing, you help keep 3CR on the air, keep a, uh, a viable alternative voice alive and kicking at a time when... Uh, News Corp people are being parachuted into the ABC. Uh, Gina Reinhart's buying up positions on the Fairfax board and, you know, progressive media is uh, under attack. So subscribe, support 3CR. It's important and uh, we we love your your help and your support. It keeps us ticking. All right, activist calendar time. This evening, take a stand against racism in the far right. Protest Corey Bernardi and George Christensen when they speak in Melbourne at Q Society fundraiser dinner. The event intends to raise cash to legally defend known Islamophobes, Q Society of Australia members Curie Smith and Debbie Robinson. They've been charged with defamation by Mohammed El Muheli uh, from the Halal Certification Authority Proprietary Limited for their role in whipping up a racist scare campaign against halal food. The Q Society focuses on anti-Islam. Its political arm is the Australia Liberty Alliance, ALA's electoral platform, 
is more explicit about Q Society's broader agenda. Zionist opposes marriage equality and believes in, quote-unquote, the natural family, opposes abortion after the first trimester and lowering the child benefit after the third child, quote-unquote, giving birth should not be considered a substitute for income, opposes special treatment, i.e. of First Nations, is anti-union, Excessive union behaviour that leads to increased labour costs and sends jobs overseas must be banned, is what they say. Ban unions. Uh, is part of the international Stop the Islamisation of Nations, which is like the fascist international and has ties with the English Defence League and most likely other fascist organisations. The Q Society have kept this, uh, the location of this uh, venue for this event tonight secret. Probably won't disclose until sometime today. Uh, so the plan is stay safe, meet at 5pm as a group at Flinders Street Station Steps this afternoon and then travel together to wherever that uh, fundraising uh, Islam, um, Islamophobia festival is being held and protest it and say this is not cool and you're not welcome here. Um, message the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism campaign against racism and fascism facebook page with your phone number and i will text you the location of the venue and updates uh, as soon as they know it uh all right and then tomorrow let us save lentils it's time to dig in and help out a footscray community icon who look after and service our community and provide for the most vulnerable the good folk at Lentil have been doing it pretty tough financially for a while now, and it's time to give back to these good folk who've given our community so much and looked after the most needy. They represent everything good about our home, helping the less fortunate, providing a diverse, safe space, bringing people together and being a great community icon that we can ill afford to lose. And that is tomorrow, Saturday, February 11, 10.30 till 7.30 at um, Lentil is Anything in Footscray. And I don't actually have the address for that here, but I'm um, sure you can Google um, it. That's on Barclay Street. In ah. Cool. Yep. Just and um, so um, on in um, also following that, there'll be actually another fundraiser happening in Footscray for lentils. I think it's all pa- organised by the same crew, um, but there will be a sort of party um, happening um, at the Hot Shots Cafe, which is at 20 Buckley Street. They'll be happening from 8 um, to to 3 a.m. on a Sunday tomorrow. Um, there'll be, um, there'll be as part of this, I think this is part, pretty sure this is part of the sustainable festival. Um, there'll be a, a forum, renewable energy and beyond transitioning to a renewable society. That'll be happening on Sunday, um, 1.30 to, um, free. And, um, there's actually no address here, which is a bit weird. Um, so yep. Next announcement. Uh, a radical take on climate. Doing it ourselves, a radical environmental collective would like to share some of our views on climate change and the climate movement and have a bit of a conversation. Uh, coming from a critical yet optimistic systems thinking perspective, the discussion includes fighting climate change through system change, direct action, renewables, carbon drawdown, what's really locked in, funding, alternatives and more. Come along and get a different perspective on how we could solve the climate crisis. That is from 5 to 6pm on Sunday, which is the 12th of Feb. That's part of the Sustainable Living Festival and that's all happening around Fed Square sort of area. Yeah. Alright, so the next announcement of that. Um, the next announcement you're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 
18th of February from 2 to 4pm at the Melbourne State Library. Um, it is organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, it's against the Trump Muslim ban and also for refugee rights in Australia and abroad. Okay. So we're going to be getting ready for our next um, interview. I might just go, while Zane's getting some set up, I'll, get, I'll just announce the next um, um, set of events. Um, there'll be an International Women's Day rally uh, in March happening on Wednesday the 8th, 8th on, at 5.30pm at the Parliament House on Spring Street, um, which will then march to the Shrades Hall for an after-party kind of event. Um, there's um, Adio Sadani in association with Market Forces. This special event is to raise funds for the campaign to stop Adani from building their giant coal mine in central Queensland. Um, proceeds after event costs will be split equally between the Wangan and the Jalagum people, traditional owners of the area Adani wants to mine, and Market Forces to support the campaign to stop Adani's mega mine. That will be happening on Thursday, the 23rd of February um, from at 8.30 at... Where's the address here? Can't find it. That's me. Yep. But um, you can probably, you'll probably find it, be able to find the address if you search Adios Adani. Um, there'll be a, a public forum at the New International Bookshop, um, Resinking Socialism for Sustainability. Um, increasing numbers of people argue that um, capitalism can't solve our environmental challenges. Many argue that this constitutes a powerful case to, to reconsider socialism. But so how does socialism need... Uh, need to be have also put a four-month freeze on refugees and an indefinite freeze on refugees from Syria. We need to oppose this racism here in, in Australia. That'll be happening um, at the new international bookshop, which is at the Trade Tour. Yeah. Okay. Right, and um, there will be another um, event, um, Decolonising Feminism, Building Solidarity, with live um, readings of bold and irresistible um, feminist texts by selection of diverse feminist educators and students and practitioners. Um, they will feature cl- special guests including Claire Land and uh, actress director Candy Bowers. Um, that will be at Reu in the Community, which is at 138 Nicholson Street, and they will happening from Monday, March 20th, um, 5.30 to 8.30. Alrighty. Uh, okay, so this morning we are very pleased to be speaking with Lura Gagrovich, who is the uh, Victorian Branch Secretary of the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, and the RTBU are currently waging campaign to get the trains in Victoria back in uh, public ownership. Welcome, Lura. Hi, good morning. Uh, so what's... Uh, What's happening with this campaign? Um, why why were Victoria's trains privatised to begin with, and uh, why is it? Uh, what are some of the many reasons it's a good idea to bring the trains back into public ownership? Look, in my opinion, it's actually pretty simple. They were privatised back in the 90s uh, under Jeff Kennett. That was almost 20 years ago. Uh, We're the only state in all of Australia which has a fully privatised rail and tram system. Um, But even Jeff himself has come out now and said, actually, it was probably a mistake. Uh, We could do it a lot cheaper and better ourselves. Um, The reality is that the operators of the rail and tram franchises are Metro Trains and KDR. Um, These companies are 60% owned by the Hong Kong-based government 
and the remaining 40% is shared equally by UGL services with um, 76% owned by the Hong Kong. So the reality is we've got other um, other governments actually running our public transport system. Hmm. Uh, and how much how much profit do you do you estimate has gone offshore or to yeah, these so programs? Yeah, so just in the last seven years of this franchise, since we've had Metro Trains Melbourne and KDR running the tram, uh, there's been $10 billion generated and there has been $350 million worth of profit which has gone offshore. So that's money that obviously could be spent here in Victoria on health, education or actually put towards our own public transport. Hmm. Um. I guess um, 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 what is um, why actually the question is I guess um, with the railway and tramway um, busting in um, ha, um, is there some particular issue where um, why you're why we're campaigning for this um, for back into public ownership like a sort of opening by which we can take advantage of? Well, look, I think the numbers speak for themselves. Three hundred and fifty million dollars worth of profit. I don't know about you, but I know where I'd prefer to see that mm. uh, spent here in our own backyard, not shipped offshore. Uh, now, the RTBU obviously covers all sorts of tram and rail workers, not just drivers, but people who administer and run Absolutely. the logistics of the trains. Uh, is it within uh, the capacity of the Victorian government and of your membership to take the rail and tram system back into public operation? Uh, yeah, the, the chance is now. The opportunity is now. Um, 30th of November is uh, the absolute cut-off date. That's the expiration date for the current contracts for both the trams and the railway. Uh, so it's now in the hands of the government. Um, Public Transport Victoria are currently assessing the bids which both Metro and Yarra Trams have put in. Um, and then the decision will ultimately be the government's decision. Yeah, right. Um, so um, how... I guess I wanted to ask, you know, how is sort of the campaign going in, um, in terms of the membership, in terms of driving this um, to put the pressure on the government? To Look, it's 100% run by the membership and, you know, we are a union, which is a, a, a membership-based organisation. Um, if it wasn't for the membership wanting to run this, we wouldn't be running the campaign. Um, but like every campaign, we need to get the community involved. So www.publictransportpublichands.com. Um, please, I urge all listeners to go on there and sign the petition if they also believe that we should own our own public transport. Yeah, we could... And uh, do, you reckon it's a, do you reckon it's a winnable campaign? Look, I think if we weren't having the campaign, the contract would have just been rolled over. Hmm. Um, so we've got to give it our best. Hmm. Yeah, can I race. Have you got any rallies or anything planned between now and November 30? We had a launch last Thursday. Um, There'll be a few more decisions prior to November 30. November 30 is the absolute cut-off, but there's a few more dates that are a bit closer. Um, But, yeah, we probably will have a protest out the front of Parliament House um, just to apply some additional pressure, but a date for that's yet to be set, but I'll make sure I let you know. Yeah. Well, um, November 30th actually gives us quite a good um, time for, you know, the union to, conti- um, to consist in the campaign. I remember I saw on the Facebook page that you were um, lifting, you know, to, to the community, you know, handing out leaflets yeah. about supporting the campaign. So yeah. I think you have a lot of time there to be able to build, like, broad community support, you know, to, and to put the pressure on the government, you know, to put it back into public hands. Totally agree, 100%.
And is this something, have you got other unions that are supporting the campaign as well, or uh, Vic Trades Hall? Yeah, so Trades Hall um, has come out and they've well and truly got behind it. I've raised it at um, the Victorian Trades Hall Executive, of which a motion was successfully passed and all unions voted to support it. Um, the ACTU has also come out. Jed Khan put out a, the president of the ACTU put out a statement of support. Um, I actually haven't met one person that said, no, this is a terrible idea, don't run this campaign. It's now just actually getting the government on board. Yeah, word. it really says something when even even Jeff Kennett, who privatised the service... Mm, and he never admits failure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah wicked. Um, oh, that's very exciting stuff. And I think around the world there's been a lot of privatisations in, um, I guess, Western countries, places like Australia. So... It's not that common for those privatisations to be reversed. So this will be a really important victory if you can uh, mobilise the community and, and other unions and, and pull it off. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate any support. And again, we really need to get um, more names on that petition. So if you can get that out there, that would be appreciated. Yep. Okay. All anyway. right. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, thank yeah, you very thank much. Thank you so much. And good. Okay, best bye. of luck to the campaign. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Cheers. Uh, Luba Grigorovich there from the Rail, Tram and Bus Union. R- Luba is the Victorian branch secretary. And as mentioned, they're waging a campaign to get the trains and trams in Victoria back into public ownership. And if you want to support that, sign the petition as mentioned, publictransportpublichands.com. Uh, and, um, yeah, if, um, if this was successful, hopefully, um, we'll get, see a vast improvement in the punctuality of, um, our Melbourne of our public transport system because I can't count the amount of times it has been late um, and um, you know there's also the lack of um, frequent services so you know if um, you know that 300 million dollars of profit imagine if that mo- money actually went into improving the public transport what you could have is you could have more frequent train lines um, you could have um, more train stations being built in sort of the underserviced areas because um, yeah the reality is of um, Melbourne despite Melbourne you know Melbourne has like you know a generally quite a good very good public transport system but it's only right a route, city. but yeah. it's only a good public transport system if you live in say the inner north the inner yeah. west the inner east or the inner south and then the central city if you live far out there it's actually the 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 glaring flaws start to become much more obvious mm-hmm. um and there's a reason why despite the fact that you know a lot of people do use the Melbourne public transport system if you live in the the car the rate of car ownership is you know and use is still very high and the reason for that is because so much of Melbourne uh so much well so much of the population of Melbourne live in all these outer um east suburbs uh, south suburbs and you basically can't live in those suburbs unless you have a car because it's just too inconvenient otherwise um you can't um you can't rely on the mm. public transport system then when you No train run to the airport which is ridiculous, and uh, suburbs out that way, like Tullamarine, Kilo, there's no train out there. Um, well, interesting enough, there's this. Um, if you live in Sydney, there is a there is a public trans, there is a train line, but they, I think, I don't know how the logistics of this work, but they charge like an excessive fee. Yeah, so like um, twenty three bucks or something. Um, so it's not really in reality, yeah, not much different from what we have in Melbourne, which we have this sort of shuttle bus system, which is. Yeah probably the same cost um, mm. 
but there, but there is actually in uh, Melbourne. Um, this is sort of a, a small little detail because I like I, I travel a lot on public transport. You get a mascot, don't you? And there's like, and there's like, there's like, um, there's like this bus route that just goes all around from from the airport through or out the 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 eastern suburbs mm. goes through well a bit of the northwest and then it goes all the way from the <laughs> east and then goes all the way down yeah. to Frankston. So there's sort of this very long bus route. You can get you can get to the airport from there oh. but it just means you have to get off at an odd suburb. Like you can get off at like say say for example you could take a train <laughs> all the way to the Broadmeadows station um, which is still like a 30 minute train ride and then you can get get a bus that goes direct to the airport in like 20 to 25 minutes <laughs> once it arrives yeah. yeah yeah i think just building a direct train on there is probably going to be a bit better yeah <laughs> oh yeah and if, but if you live in frankston you can take a direct bus to the airport that takes two hours so <laughs> right. Hi, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. We're just nearing down the end of the show. Um, but we're going to just go talk about a quick news story um, happening in the United States. Um, we covered a lot of this um, 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 this big campaign against um, the Dakota Pipeline at Standing Rock. Um, this is an article basically you know, that police in North Dakota have arrested 76 people at the Standing Rock protest camp on February um, 1st. Um, basically, we may have, you know, people might have heard that was potentially a past retreat, but it looks like it's slowly being reversed as police are. The pipeline is actually going to go, is going to get built at this point. Um, like the last year, you know, the First Nations were water protectors set up protest camp at, um, camps at Standing Rock to block pipeline construction. Um, amid growing protests, the Barack Obama's administration blocked approval of the pipeline's current path. However, one of President Donald Trump's first actions was to basically rec- was basically to reverse all that. Um, revert- water protectors now have, in response, have set up a new camp, the Last Child Camp, and lit a sacred fire near where construction is expected to begin. They vow to stop the pipeline, which violates the sovereignty and treaty rights of the Standing Rock, uh, Sarex Tribe, and threatens to contaminate the water supply for millions of um, North Dakota residents. You know, arf- armed police and used bulldozers and sound cannons to destroy the camp, put out the sacred fire, and carry out their arrest. Uh, Morton County's Sheriff's Officer's spokesperson said it was too soon to say what charges the protesters would face. Um, but basically, um, a lot of water protectors really felt we needed to make some sort of um, stand um, as far as treaty rights. Linda Black Ilk, a member of the Contrary Nation, told The Guardian, we basically started to see the police um, mobilising from all directions. Someone came along and told us we had about 15 minutes before the camp would get raided. Uh, so basically, um, to summarise this, um, the struggle is still going to go continue. Um, we'll go, we'll, and I quickly say we stand in solidarity with those protesting against the pipeline and hopefully um, now that it is under Donald Trump that this pipeline is actually going to get um, built, it's not going to be reversed anytime soon, or that um, all the groups of people who were um, supporting this um, struggle in the United States will start to um, get organised and stand up against this. Yeah, and I did read something about the uh, the veterans uh, against the pipeline uh, who had been there previously to sort of defend the camp against police and military aggression. I have heard that they're heading back there. Uh, so that would be really uh, um, 
good to see yeah. and, and a and much did, needed bolstering of the camp. I and think. Uh, and interesting um, prospects um, for is that this all these could um, potentially link up with the growing sort of anti-Trump kind of sentiment that's um, which is you know mm. and seeing a massive increase in membership of um, socialist political organisations, um, seeing lots of mass rallies and lots of people getting involved in activism for the first time. So um, we're in for some interesting times in America. So yeah, stay tuned. Okay, nice. All right. Uh, let us, we're going to hand over to Beyond Zero Emissions. So thanks again for tuning into Green Left Radio. And uh, yeah, make sure you subscribe to 3CR and keep this ship sailing along, kicking along, ticking along. All right. Bye for now. <laughs>